All right, everyone. Well, um, how are you today? It's great to see you. Even the, you braved the snow. Who's loving the snow? Raise your hand if you're loving the snow. Me too. Who's like literally like going like in your snow pants and you're like about to go up to Mount Bachelor after this? At least a handful of you. Okay. Oh, that's awesome. But you made it to church anyways. That's wonderful. I'm so glad you're here. Um, Advent, uh, among other things, is our way of responding to and sort of standing against the commercialization of what are historically holy days. So this season isn't about just like getting a great deal on a kitchen appliance or like the festive color palette or just accumulating more things. This season is about a person. Or better said, it's about God who became human in the person of Jesus. And it's him who's bringing, as we're about to sing, joy to the world. But what's, what is his joy like? Uh, is it for real? Or is it just one of those other empty promises that we've heard throughout life? And if it's for real, then how do we get it? These are the questions that I think the Lord wants to answer for each of us today. And these are important questions to answer because a lot like the first two themes of Advent, hope and peace, joy is something that would seem is in short supply in 2022. Maybe not for you, but certainly for some in the room today and certainly around the world. Just this Friday, a couple days ago, we hosted our fundraiser uh, for our partners, Justice, Compassion, and Hope whose mission is to prevent sex trafficking in northern Brazil. And for those of you who weren't able to make it, sex trafficking is a $9 billion a year industry, and Brazil has some of the highest rates of abuse in the whole world. In northern Brazil, where justice and compassion and hope works, uh, 62% of young women, sometimes girls as young as seven years old, are victimized either sexually abused or full-on trafficked, some of them repeatedly throughout their lives. That's more than six out of 10 girls that are being subjected and abused and trafficked. That is oppression, that is dehumanizing, in my view, that is hell on earth. So, if Christmas is about hope, peace, and joy spreading to the world, then it can't just be for us in this room. It has to be for places where extreme poverty and sex trafficking are affecting more than half of the human beings who are loved by God in the same sort of passionate and intense way that he loves you. And if that's the case, then Christmas has got to be about more than scoring a great deal on more stuff or, or filling our front yards with inflatable reindeer or something like that. Like, I'm all for the festive Christmas spirit, but the advent of Jesus, it has to offer us more than that. And we're fortunate because he does. So let's go back to that announcement uh, from the angels that they made to the shepherds outside Bethlehem. It says this, I bring you good news that will cause great joy that will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, a savior has been born for you and he's Christ the Lord. So try and picture this uh, this very familiar scripture. Let's try and enter into the world of the shepherds for a moment. Try to picture with me the night sky. It's normally filled with stars that has now been overtaken by the shining bright light of the heavenly host. That's the angels. And then the light of God's glory is shining all around you. 
And then there was this eruption, the scripture tells us, of praise and worship from the angels like thunder in response to the news that the Savior is finally here. And Luke says that the shepherds were terrified at the whole scene because of how just overwhelming and huge it was. But it makes sense. News like this isn't just going to be like announced in an email or something like that. Right? This news, is, it's, 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 it's going to come with a bit of fanfare. It's going to come with elation. It's going to come with celebration. And that's exactly what we see. I have this theory. I think that the world's greatest bands, biggest bands, uh, who have multi-million dollar production budgets and stuff like that, I think that deep down what they're trying to do is rec- recreate this sense of wonder and this, this sense of, uh, of just, uh, just grandeur and power and glory uh, that, the, that, the, that the angels were producing outside of Bethlehem. And, and yet, there's still just like a fraction of the glory that's actually been revealed in Jesus. All of what we can conjure up through all of our whatever is not even worthy to be compared of the glory that's being revealed in Jesus. Now, this announcement... Um, of good news for great joy for all people uh, in Luke chapter two. It makes me think about another big announcement that happened back in 2007. So our lifetime. I went back and actually watched the original uh, video from this announcement on YouTube uh, in preparation for this talk. And the video is of uh, Steve Jobs. And he's standing on a stage in Silicon Valley and he's holding the world's first iPhone in his hand and it sparked the age of the smartphone. And it is so surreal to watch. If you're interested, I recommend you go back and take, take a watch and take a listen because it's such recent history, 2007. But when you are watching it, it feels like such distant history at the same time because of how much the world has changed since 2007. And the device that he's announcing is the reason why the world has changed so dramatically in such a short period of time. And right when I was thinking that thought, Steve Jobs said, iPhone's going to change everything. And he was actually right about that. The other reason why it's so surreal to watch the video, though, is to see the spiritual significance that people in the room were connecting with this device. And um, it's remarkable to see. Jobs was announcing not just a product, but he was announcing a promise about a better life and a hopeful future, and everyone in the room that day was buying it. The video shows what I wish things looked like in our churches when we were talking about the goodness of God. There were grown men in their suits in the front row, crying tears of joy, and shouting and applauding at the advent of iPhone. It was like a moment of spiritual awakening in our secular tech-addicted age. So this is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, of course. I'm sort of comparing the two, but this is not a joke. This is exactly what happened. You can go back and you can watch it. So is that it? Is that what we're talking, when we say joy to the world, is that exuberance, is that real joy? Well, of course, knowing what we, we know now about being always on, always connected to the internet, to social media, to work email, to pornography, to the global news cycle, to Amazon, and their effects on our emotions and on our spiritual health. Everyone's exuberance and belief and trust in iPhone in 2007, it just feels like a tragedy when you watch it today. Was it a major breakthrough in technology and engineering? Yes, of course it was that. 
Was it the most like world-changing product of the last several hundred years? I think that that's true of, uh, as well. But less than 20 years later, billions of iPhones shipped. Even the most optimistic take, those shouts of praise in Silicon Valley back in 2007 were so premature. And the promise that a product can bring you joy is once again just completely empty. Now, we like to think of ourselves as too sophisticated to buy into these messages and these visions of the good life that are being sold to us. But the reality is these ideas, they follow us as well. Some of us are just as tech addicted as anyone else. Herman Bavink, way back in the 19th century, he predicted that this crisis was coming a hundred years or more before it actually did. The more abundantly the benefits of civilization come streaming our way, the emptier our lives will become. With all of its wealth and power, it only shows that the human heart is so huge that all of the world is too small to satisfy it. And I think that those words are deeply prophetic. And of course, Bavink's line of reasoning is rooted in the wisdom of Scripture, particularly Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, All is vanity under the sun or apart from God. Or chapter 3, which says, He has set eternity in the human heart. Or in the language of St. Augustine, who writes, Our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. So he is the one that we're really looking for. And he's the one that we're actually discovering and finding our spiritual satisfactions from. Now, I'm not necessarily saying that we all need to get rid of our iPhones, although I'm sure that some of us probably would be much better served if we didn't have one. But I am saying that giving it your attention and abiding with your iPhone, trusting it to bring you joy, is at best a lost cause, and at worst, it's worshiping a false god and wreaking havoc on your interior world. And I know that uh, what I'm saying to you might actually seem a little bit out of left field and maybe even a little bit extreme, but in my life and work as a pastor, just about everyone, if not everyone, who comes to me in some form of crisis has tech addiction as one of the primary uh, ingredients of the cocktail and which brings them to me. And we are giving our, our phones our undivided attention. We're abiding with our phones. We're constantly connected. We know what's going on at all times. And so therefore, we are not free to give our attention to the Lord. So let's compare that to what the angels are announcing Jesus's, uh, when, when they're announcing Jesus' birth. What is this great joy for all people that he's offering? Well, as I'm sure you're aware, uh, joy is this major motif in the Bible. And on page one, we're introduced to this God who speaks the universe into existence. And at the end of six days, he looks back on everything and says, this is all very good, right? This is a part of the scripture you're probably very familiar with. Now, what we're supposed to actually understand about these first couple of pages of Genesis is that God has meticulously arranged the natural world for you and I to enjoy the beauty of it all. That is the why, that is the purpose, that we would be able to uh, enjoy the cosmos, but more importantly, enjoy him in all of it. How do we know this? It's, it's in the name. 
It's the Garden of Eden or the Garden of Delight. That's the literal translation of that word Eden in Hebrew. And, and this is all about God welcoming us into his divine hospitality. And this is your origin story where the scripture says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day. This is what God had in mind from the beginning. And here in Ben, this sort of thing reeks, rings true, especially with all of the snow following, falling. The beauty that God has has in mind, and the joy that we're meant to derive from it is self-evident. All you need to do is spend a moment at Tumalo Falls or Sparks Lake or listen to an amazing piece of music or eat a gourmet meal, and you'll discover that the, the natural world is like over the top by design, meaning that there's beauty where there doesn't have to be beauty. There's beauty where there doesn't have to be. And so from the biblical perspective, that describes something about God and what he's like. He is an artist who makes incredible stuff for us to enjoy or to take joy in or to experience joy from. But in the same breath, we are outside of Eden. We are outside of Eden, right? Um, The world has been corrupted by human rebellion, sin, the kingdom of darkness. So now there are things like sex trafficking, and extreme poverty, and war, and tech addiction, and all the other evil things that we now are faced with. So in order to have real joy outside of Eden, then things need to be made right again. And this is what the Bible calls redemption. If you've been here long, you know we talk about this a lot because this is the primary work that God is up to in the world. He's about redeeming things that are evil. He's about making things right. And what's amazing is that despite everything that is evil outside of Eden, people can still experience joy. For example, this is a picture of a young woman in northern Brazil. This is Marina. I think when this picture is taken, she's about 10 or 11. And she's still living in the developing world, and she still has basically no modern conveniences. She doesn't even really have a decent pair of shoes. She's got virtually nothing to her name. And yet, if you look at her expression, which is kind of muted because of all of the light, but if you look at her expression, you can see that there's real joy in her eyes. So how is it that she, despite what she's going through in life, can have real joy? Well, I think it's a a couple of things. But firstly, Allie, who you see there from Justice, Compassion, and Hope, she came to her in Jesus' name, and she gave her an opportunity to work, to work. And so now, instead of being forced to sell herself into the trade because her parents died in a car wreck, she is able to have a legitimate form of income, albeit small, so she can actually support herself. So her standard of living is still well beneath anything that we would consider to be remotely reasonable. But she has joy. Not because God's redemption is complete, but because God's redemption has begun. And she believes that his full redemption is on the way. So she can actually take joy in the present. So everything will be right in the end. And so she has joy because the redemption has actually begun. And this is exactly how the Old Testament describes joy. Not in God's completed redemption, but in his promise to redeem and the taste of it that we have in the present. This is 
crucially important. Let me repeat what I just said. The Bible describes joy in this way, not in how God has completed redemption, but in his promise to redeem and the taste of it that we have in the present. For example, Psalm 28, verse 7. For the Lord is my strength and my shield. I trust in him with all of my heart. You quoted that earlier, or some uh, version of that. He helps me, and my heart is filled with what? Joy. And I burst out in songs of thanksgiving. So by the way, the author of this psalm is a guy named King David, who I'm sure most of you know, and he had a long list of enemies. When he's writing this, he has a long list of enemies that want to kill him. But his attitude is that, you know, the Lord is with me. He's my protector. He's helping me. And as I trust in him, my heart fills with joy to the point where my heart is bursting out in song. A couple of pages to the right, Psalm 105. It's a song of remembrance when God delivered Israel from Egypt. And after he had delivered them from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea. And now they're just sort of hanging out in the desert on their way to the promised land. And what is the first thing that they do? Well, the first thing that they do, according to the song, is he brought his people out with rejoicing and his chosen one with shouts of joy. So the salvation of God in an evil moment is producing shouts of joy. So when we pay attention to and we're able to see God at work, your heart begins to be filled with joy. Not because everything is right, but God's redemption has begun and because you can see that eventual, ultimate redemption that is on the horizon. Later in the Old Testament, it's another low point and Isaiah the prophet tells about a better future. Again, this is a major motif. I'm only giving you three examples, but there's literally dozens, if not more, that I could give you. Those that the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Come on. And that is our hope, too, that better days are ahead. By the way, notice that joy and singing in the Bible are completely inseparable. They just are inseparable. You, when you see rejoicing, when you see joy, you see shouts of praise. I wish I had a better singing voice, uh, but I'm very grateful for all of you uh, who lead us on Sundays. So here's what we got so far. Joy is an attitude. It's a disposition of the heart. And it's the enjoyment that we get in the good things about God and the stuff that he's made. So you can have joy in a good book, and I'm sure many of you do, or good music. You can have joy in your relationships or at a fun party, or a beautiful landscape. And because uh, we are made in the image of God, and because we've been given eternity, eternity in our hearts, as Ecclesiastes says, joy becomes more full and more real when we connect it back to our relationship with the Creator. But, again, to establish this perspective, according to the Scriptures, joy is also a choice made by faith in the promise of God. Joy is a choice made by faith in the promise of God. In the words of Tim Mackey, joy is an attitude that God's people adopt, not because of happy circumstances, but because of their hope in God's love and promise. So this is what Christmas is actually about, is that sense of anticipation that God's promise is true and that our future 
uh, redemption is more real to us or where we're anchoring our hope not being stuck in the present. And I think that's how people like Marina, although she still has a lot that is not right with her life, she's able to experience and have real joy, not just something that she's forced to conjure up, but something that's actually very real to her because she's seeing God's redemption begin in her life. And this is, again, a major repeated command in Scripture as well, uh, particularly in the New Testament. I will give you one example. Paul in Philippians writes this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. And again, he's saying this while in prison. So my failure, my tragedy, my sadness does not have the final word. We actually have true joy because we're trusting in God's end game, right? We're trusting in his end game. And one of the things that has surprised me about the church in the West and something that we're actively trying to teach forward here at Riverbend is that we need to actually have an orientation towards heaven, towards Jesus' eventual return, and, the, and in the way that this story is going to end, and that's how we can experience true joy. Now, here's the shocking reality of Luke chapter 2 and why the angels are showing up in full force, and I still think putting Coldplay's production team to shame in uh, their worship uh, of Yahweh in this moment. Real redemption that has been on the horizon and that we've been hoping and is arriving, is dawning with the advent of Jesus. Again, today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. So the wait is over. The wait is over. The one who brings joy to the world is finally here. So this angst that we all share for the things in our world and in our life that are not right, is actually being made right, in the process of being made right through the advent of Messiah. And that is cause for rejoicing. Even before that full redemption has been realized, we are rejoicing in the goodness of God. So yes, there is a lot of pain in our experience, but there's also this persistent joy because we know what's coming. And again, this is what we're celebrating this Christmas. And um, I guess my, my hope for us as a church, and my hope for you, my hope for, for me as well, I'm speaking to you just as much as I'm speaking to any of us, is that we would see Jesus for who he actually really truly is. And that this revelation and this um, experience of Jesus would bring us to a place of just being totally enthralled and captivated and inspired by him. And that there wouldn't be anything else that we would even seek uh, to satisfy ourselves other than him. You know those people who are just um, always making it about Jesus? Those people who are always, anytime you talk to them, they're talking about what Jesus has been doing in their life lately. And they're just so sort of caught up in his story and in his in their life with him, that's what I long for for us, is that we would have a solidarity of heart, that he is the savior of the world, he is the true redeemer, he is worthy of all of our affection and our devotion and our attention and our worship, 
And again, while he's on the earth, he gives us this really beautiful example to follow. He embodies this attitude of joy, which is why I think it's so important for you and I to be immersed in the story of the Gospels year in, year out, day by day. Because as we witness Jesus walking the earth, he embodies this attitude of persistent joy. Like in Luke chapter 10, it says, at the time, Jesus was full of joy through the Holy Spirit. He's full of joy through the Holy Spirit. So again, he's your example to follow. He's a person of joy who's empowered by the Spirit, and that's who we want to be too. Last week, I was reminiscing with a friend um, about those uh, bracelets from the 1990s, the What Would Jesus Do bracelets. You remember those? Those of you who are old enough to remember them? And at first, when we were talking about it, we were kind of like poking fun at the sort of cliche, weird Christian subculture that they came from. Secretly, though, I kind of wish we could bring them back. Not in like the weird cliche way, but in a sincere from the heart way. Like what is wrong with asking ourselves the question, what would Jesus do in this or that situation? Biblically speaking, it feels like the exact right question to be asking. So I don't know if you have to like nuance that in several different ways before you can get on board with the question, what would Jesus do? But be my guest. But at the end of the day, get over yourself and just do what Jesus would do in every situation, which is to just become a person of joy. Uh, so Jesus is the Redeemer, and he's also a person of great joy, our example to follow. And finally, he also gives us a pattern of joy that we can practice. He gives us a pattern that we can practice. So joy, as we've established, is an attitude, but it's also a virtue that we cultivate. And Jesus shows us exactly how to cultivate this virtue. For example, on the night that Jesus was arrested and the night that he went to the cross, he taught his disciples one last time. And it's called the Upper Room Discourse. I think just about everything you need to know about leadership in the kingdom of God, you could find right there in those couple of chapters of John. John chapter 12, the latter half of 12 through chapter 15. And on that night, he, he shares with his disciples the, the metaphor of the vine and the branches. John chapter 15 verse 5 says this, I am the vine and you are the branches. And if you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And I love this concept. And I think it's such a basic and fundamental secret for you actually enjoying God is what the Bible calls abiding. Learning to abide, which is to be present and to be connected with God moment by moment in your everyday life. Much of what we were talking about during our prayer series leading up to Advent. Abiding is where we become aware of God's presence. And as I say that, I, I, I hope that we um, can really let that settle in and actually want to absorb that and internalize that, that we would be the kinds of people who become aware of God's presence and we are continually connected to him. So abiding in him is, is, is another way of describing it is we're sort of caught up in him. Scholars say that in all likelihood, Jesus loved this metaphor of the vine and the branches because with vine and branches, it's very hard to, 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 to tell or to differentiate where the vine ends and the branches begin. And so it's this idea of being sort of indistinguishable and being interconnected with the Spirit of God moment by moment, day by day. And then a couple of verses later, he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. 
Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, then you will remain in my love. Right? So in other words, um, the love of the Father has been given to us through Jesus. And the way that we respond in love to him is through our obedience. Right? Love and obedience are the foundation of our relationship with him. Look at it like this. It's fidelity. It's faithfulness to God who's given everything to you. So obedience is a, is a way that we demonstrate our love back to him. So again, this is the idea of the vine and the branches. Be with him, receive his love, and then be faithful to his commands. And then here comes the promise. Be with him, receive his love, be faithful uh, to his commands. Here's the promise. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. This is, the, this is how we experience his joy. Now, uh, I started today by talking about sort of tongue-in-cheek how we abide in our phones. We abide in our devices. And if we do, then we'll just produce a different kind of fruit. It'll be anxiety. It'll be lust. It'll be comparison. It'll be over-busyness or many other things. But when you abide in Jesus and his words abide in you, your joy will be complete. So there you have it. Um, as we close, I just want to share with you um, a couple ways to actually put this into practice. And this is just a very simple three-step practice that I'm going to actually lead us through after I'm done explaining it. Uh, but number one in this three-step process, again, uh, I think you can find this in, in uh, excuse me, uh, John chapter 15. You can also see it in uh, Philippians chapter 4. But the first part of the practice is to simply give thanks. Give thanks. Which I know you, you, might, you might actually be hearing that and thinking to yourself, oh man, that's just too painfully simple. I, I agree with you, but hang with me. Thanksgiving is this exercise that grows our trust in the Lord. You hear me talk about faith being like a muscle. And a lot of these virtues are like that. The more that we exercise them, the more that they become a deep part of our life. So thanksgiving is an exercise that grows our trust in God. And this is both a posture and it's a practice. So the posture, again, is about your attitude, which naturally ebbs and flows depending on how your week is going or what's happening in your life. But practice is your conscious choice to cultivate joy with your actions. Right? So you can't always help your attitude. Your attitude is going to ebb and flow with given your week, but you can Make a conscious choice to cultivate joy with your actions. And then it becomes this, uh, this healthy, self-perpetuating cycle. So here's the action. Every morning, before you reach for your iPhone, and this is important, before you reach for whatever device, seriously, get yourself like a cheap alarm. We use a little Sonos speaker, and I'm gently woken up to really nice like ambient music. It's fantastic. So, so get a cheap alarm to wake you up, leave your phone in the drawer, and give your first word and your first moment of every day to thanking God. The first little bit of consciousness you have in the morning, give that to thanking the Lord, giving him praise. And so just ask yourself the simple question, what are you actually, what are you truly thankful for? And of course, what's maybe front of mind when you wake up in the morning is maybe 
dread of what you have to do today. Maybe it's the sorrow over a broken relationship. Maybe it's other things, aches and pains in your body. I know some of you are not well. And so those are the things that are front of mind. But if we take our first moment and our first kind of bit of consciousness and our first word to giving thanks to God, um, what we're doing is we're actually sorting through all of the messiness of life and we're choosing to, to, to be thankful. So take some time to actually do that thoughtfully. That might take you a minute, might take you three to four, and then tell God thank you. Yours your mouth, open your mouth and tell God that you're thankful for him. Um, you could do that quietly, I suppose, but I think there's something really powerful about saying this out loud. When giving thanks is your daily habit, the first thing you do before you reach for your phone or a cup of coffee or do anything else, you begin to naturally resist the temptation to be discontent with the life that you don't have, and you begin to be able to actually receive as gift the life that you do have. And I think that giving thanks as the first thing you do every morning is the cure to grumbling and complaining, which the Bible tells us not to do. I think the cure for that is to give yourself to Thanksgiving first thing in the morning. And it's also the beginning of the experience of joy, whatever season you're in. So that's number one, give thanks to God before you do anything else. Number two, draw near to God in prayer. Remember, God is a joy-filled being, right? Uh, we had to leave Eden, but he didn't. And he is filled with joy. And remember, the scripture says that Jesus was, in, in Luke 10, Jesus was full of joy by the Spirit. The book of Acts describes the apostles as full of joy by the Spirit. Well, why? Because they were drawing near to God by the Spirit. So after your moment of gratitude, again, leave the onslaught of bad news and Twitter and work emails in the drawer for several more minutes and just be with him three to five minutes of silence, maybe more if you have time for it. You're not asking God for things. You're just paying attention to him and you're becoming aware of his presence. And if you start your day with abiding, in my humble experience, it is so much easier to keep abiding with him. And uh, when you, the first thing you do is reach for your phone in the morning and you start being hit with all of the news of the day and the things that are on your list and everything else, it's much easier to abide in your phone. So just make the choice first thing in the morning. What do you want to abide in? What do you want to abide in? Do you want to abide in Jesus or do you want to abide in your smartphone or whatever else that you might be tempted to? So start your day abiding with him. It is so much easier to keep abiding with him. So what are we going to do? We're going to give thanks. as the first moment, first word of your day. We're going to draw near to God through prayer. And then number three, we're going to be very picky about what we fill our minds with. Be very, very picky with, with what you fill your mind with. Uh, life is so complex, and our minds and our hearts are very complex as well. But putting into practice these healthy habits, it doesn't actually have to be complex. It's like, any dietitian or nutritionist would ever say to you about your diet, garbage in, garbage out. And the same is true with your mind and with your heart. If you want to experience joy, then you need to be picky about what you put uh, in your mind, what you fill your thoughts with. So in the same breath that, that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always, he also says this, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever's true, whatever's noble, 
whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever, whatever's admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So what we're doing is we're editing the, the content, we're editing the entertainment, we're editing the information, we're editing all of the things that we allow into our brains, that we allow into our minds and hearts, and instead we're focusing on what God says is right and good and true and what is worthy of praise. And now, it's possible to do this with an iPhone, I think, but you have to be ruthless in how you edit and curate your mind stream. I think that um, this is one of the reasons why for many years I have not been on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, and the amount of times that people get, hey, what's your Instagram? I'm like, nope, I got, I got none. You know, I feel like this weird unicorn in our world. Um, but the reality is that um, it's been helpful for me to not abide in uh, the things of the world, but to, to, to simplify things and to actually focus on the Lord. And what I find is that most people, although they might think I'm strange for not having these things, actually wind up appreciating it and maybe even envying the simplicity of it. And the way that this started for me was I, I, I felt that it was unethical, and I still do, I feel that it's unethical, how um, uh, companies and app developers and things like that are uh, using uh, this technology um, on children and young people who don't have fully formed prefrontal cortexes. And so we've got 13 to 16 to 20 year old girls and 13 to 16 to 20 year old boys who are being uh, put in this position of always being advertised to and told this is what the standard of beauty is and this is what masculinity is and this is what life is. And they are just upended by that and just overwhelmed by it. And many are just burdened with the uh, things of comparison. And it started out that way for me because I just, I just saw the unethics of it and, and, and how, dis, how difficult it was uh, for, for young people to engage in it. But it's turned into, uh, for, it's turned into a practice they have for me. <laughs> I need this. I need my mind to be, uh, to, I need to focus on what is right and good and true. I need to live uh, Philippians chapter four just as much as anyone else. So here's what we do. We give thanks, we draw near to God, and we be picky, be very, very picky about what we fill our minds with. And I think that if we are to follow that very simple pattern, then I think we're going to actually experience real joy from him. Uh, so let's all stand together and let's pray.